Hello and welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is Journeys from the Past, and my name is Andy Davis. The purpose of these podcasts is to inspire listeners to courageous, sacrificial actions to make progress in the two journeys, the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of evangelism and missions by learning the stories of our heroic brothers and sisters from the past. Now today we're going to talk about one of the truly great figures in church history, Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo. A number of years ago, I was coming back from a mission trip in India, I think it was, and I remember flying over the Alps and looking down at this massive uh, range of snow-capped mountains, and it was clear so I could see from the airplane just the, the dramatic scenery uh, of the, just the expanse of the Alps. And I think when we come to Augustine, at least one scholar felt that way, that that when, when you look at Augustine and the, and the massive impact that his writings have had on the development of Western Christianity, uh, it's, it's almost like uh, trying to write a guidebook to the Swiss Alps. This is a man named Benedict Groeschel who said, I feel like a man beginning to write a guidebook on the Swiss Alps. After 40 years, I can still meditate on one book of Augustine's Confessions. Uh, during a week-long retreat, uh, I can meditate on this and come back feeling frustrated that there's still so much more gold to mine just from that one book or even from those few pages. I, for one, know that I shall never in this life escape from the Augustinian Alps. I've had the opportunity to be in Switzerland, and I've zeroed in on one particular mountain. I remember going up to this one area with my daughter, and and just the details and the and the beauty and and it was a, it was the summer and so there were summer uh, wildflowers and and there was the Eiger North Face and looking up at the Eiger and and how dramatic that one face was but realizing this is just one of many 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 dramatic vistas in the Alps and so so we come to Augustine we're coming to someone like that somebody whose whose uh, writings and whose influence can almost not be calculated. Now we're going to begin our time today with a moment in history, the fall of Rome, the unthinkable in the year A.D. 410. Alaric and the Goths came against Rome and sacked it. A number of factors had led to the uh, sacking of Rome. But when St. Jerome, who had translated the Bible into the Latin Vulgate, uh, he was in Palestine at the time, heard about it, he said, if Rome can perish, then what could possibly be safe? Well, Rome didn't perish immediately, but it was coming very soon. It would take 66 more years until the final Western emperor was dethroned by the barbarian tribes. Augustine was 55 years old in the prime of his ministry at the sacking of Rome. It was shocking. And to explain it, Augustine wrote a book called The City of God. It was a theology of human history. And in it, he argued that there are two cities being constantly built. The city of man through the rise and fall of nations and empires and the city of God built by Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the ministry of the church and the gospel for the glory of God. The city of man and the city of God. You know, you really see the same themes in Habakkuk chapter 2 if you know what to look for. As Habakkuk is trying to understand the exile to Babylon and how God could possibly, the sovereign God, allow the Babylonians to come and topple Jerusalem and Habakkuk 2 gives basically the same answer. There's two big works going on and one of them is the, is the endless rise and fall of nations uh, and the other is the continual development and growth 
of the glory of God, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the, of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That empire is being built even now through the spread of the gospel. And Augustine's City of God is a timeless work explaining history and explaining time and what is going on. Now, on August 28th, the year 430, Augustine died. At that point, 80,000 barbarians called Vandals were on their way to besiege the city in North Africa where he lived, Hippo. Uh, Augustine had heard that several other Catholic bishops had been tortured to death by these Vandals, these invaders. His elders gathered in council uh, around him, and they, they used Jesus' words from Matthew 10, when you're persecuted in one place, flee to the next. And they're urging him to leave that city and save his life. But Augustine answered, Let no one dream of holding our ship so cheaply that the sailors, let alone the captain, should desert her in her time of peril. What a remarkable display of courage and of pastoral conviction that Augustine had. Augustine died four months before the city was overrun by the Vandals. Now, he had been bishop in Hippo uh, since the year 396. Five years before that, he had been appointed a priest and elder and had preached. He served that one church in Hippo for about 40 years. He had an, an, a reputation throughout the Western Roman Empire as a God-saturated scholar, a God-saturated man. He was articulate. He was persuasive. He was a passionate defender of the faith. And he opposed uh, enemies of the faith, doctrinal enemies, such as Manichaeism and Donatism and Pelagianism. And in this way, he has left an overwhelming legacy of influence. When we come to Augustine, almost cannot measure the influence that Augustine has had on the development of Christianity in the West. Christian History Magazine said, after Jesus and Paul, Augustine of Hippo is the most influential figure in the history of Christianity. Uh, Benjamin Warfield, B.B. Warfield, said that Augustine entered both the church and the world as a revolutionary force and not merely created an epoch in the history of the church, but determined the whole course of its history in the West up to its present day. Warfield also said the whole development of Western life and all of its phases was powerfully affected by Augustine's teaching. It really is quite remarkable to see how Augustine's influence flowed into two uh, very different, even contradictory camps. He is a Roman Catholic saint, Saint Augustine, and he is perhaps the most revered church father in the Roman Catholic tradition. And yet, uh, Warfield, B.B. Warfield said, Augustine gave us the Reformation. Not only because Luther was an Augustinian monk or because Calvin quoted Augustine more than any other theologian, says Warfield, but because the Reformation witnessed the ultimate triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace over the legacy of the Pelagian view of man. The Reformation was therefore the triumph of Augustine's view of grace over Augustine's view of the church. So it was like Augustine's battling with Augustine and the uh, reformers were zeroing in on Augustine's view of individual salvation, whereas their opponents, their Roman Catholic opponents, were zeroing in on Augustine's sacramental view of the church, and outside the church there is no salvation, and Augustine's view of baptism and, and of uh, clerical celibacy and all of these different things that were part of Augustine as well. Uh, one uh, scholar, Agostino Trape, wrote this, Augustine was a philosopher, theologian, a mystic, and a poet all in one.
His lofty powers complemented each other and made the man fascinating in a way difficult to resist. He is a philosopher, but not a cold thinker. He is a theologian, but also he is a master of the spiritual life. He's a mystic, but also a pastor. He's a poet, but also a controversialist. Every reader thus finds something attractive, even overwhelming, in Augustine. Depth of metaphysical intuition, rich abundance of theological proofs, synthetic power and energy, psychological depth shown in spiritual ascents, and a wealth of imagination, sensibility, and mystical fervor." End quote. So in this brief time, we're going to be visiting the Alps. How could we possibly do this? His entire library of works, catalog library of works, totals to five million words. Five million words. Now that's a staggering number, but I, I think maybe many of you may not really have a sense what that is. Recently, I submitted a manuscript to Baker Books for my book on heaven, and the limit for that manuscript was 50 to 55,000 words. So let's just keep it simple to 50,000 words. Yeah, that will be a paperback in the low 200s uh, in, in page number, maybe 220 pages. You could th think of an average kind of Christian paperback that you might read. Augustine wrote 100 of those, uh, 100 of them. It's, I've worked on that book for about five years. Uh, Augustine was cranking out, I mean, in that he had about a 40-year um, you know, active ministry from roughly age 30, roughly age 70, somewhere in that range, for writing books. He's basically writing a book like that every six months for his entire life, his entire ministry. Picture a library with you know, uh, 20 books uh, across and, and, and five books down, library shelf, nothing but Augustine. Uh, one scholar said rather humorously years and years ago, if anyone ever claims to have read all of Augustine, he is a liar. I understand that because you pick up uh, even like a, a modern translation of the confessions, Augustine's confessions uh, that some uh, Latinist did recently. And I, I was reading from it, very lively translation. And that book is in the, in the mid 300s in pages. It's a lot of reading to do. And that's just one of his books. And so, as we're dealing with uh, Augustine, we're dealing with, a, with a, a, a monumental, a titanic force through his writings. Uh, but there's value to us, uh, even though we cannot even scratch the surface, to take a, a kind of a flyover like I did in that plane that one time at the, the rugged Alpine uh, region that is Augustine. His key works, uh, you could zero in on five in particular, the, uh, his Confessions, which is basically a spiritual autobiography. Um, on Christian doctrine, overview of his basic understanding of Christian doctrine, the Enchiridion, which is like a little dagger or something like that, uh, just a, a booklet that he wrote on faith, hope, and love, the basic ideas of faith, hope, and love, and then his writings on the Trinity and the city of God. These things would be things you'd want to read. Uh, we're also going to talk about his battle against Pelagius and Pelagianism, and that's going to be vital for us as well. So let's do an overview now of his life. Uh, he was born in modern-day Numidia, uh, Thagaste, uh, I don't know how we pronounce that, or Thagaste, or something like that, in modern uh, Numidia in North Africa uh, on November 13th, the year 354. Um, his family, his father was a man named Patricius, uh, who had a, a hot temper and who had pagan habits, lived a pagan life until the final year of his life when he was finally converted. His mother, Monica, is one of the truly amazing mothers of the ancient world, uh, overwhelming in her influence 
on Augustine. She saw all three of her children and her husband become Christians before she died. She was a woman of prayer, a godly woman, uh, one of the great examples of, of saintly motherhood through in, in church history. So concerning his upbringing, his father was a middle-income farmer, and he provided an education in rhetoric for Augustine. So that would be uh, the ability to, to make a good speech, and that would lead him into uh, a successful career as in law or in politics, something like that. Um, however, Augustine soon became dissolute in his habits, sinful and, and wicked in the way he lived his life, and his family did nothing to stop him. Uh, from Confessions, Book 2, uh, Chapter 2, he said, As I grew to manhood, I was inflamed with a desire for a surfeit of hell's pleasures. My family made no effort to save me from my fall by marriage. Their only concern was that I should learn how to make a good speech and how to persuade others by words. And again, he, he said, My father took no trouble at all to see how I was growing in your sight, O God, or whether I was chaste or not. He cared only that I should have a fertile tongue. Isn't it amazing, though, that his training, his intensive training in rhetoric, ended up being used by God, by the Holy Spirit, through all of his writings. He was an amazing thinker and writer. So here's Augustine struggling with sin. He left for Carthage to study uh, for three years. His mother warned him against fornication in Carthage. Carthage is, would be in North Africa along the coast. Um, and his mother warned him about fornication, especially against seducing another man's wife. When he came to Carthage, he said he arrived burning with lust as a young man. Uh, he said, I went to Carthage where I found myself in the midst of a hissing cauldron of lust. My real need was for you, my God, who are the food of the soul. I was not aware of this hunger. By the way, Augustine's confessions are written in the second person. He's talking to God throughout the whole book. It's very much like Psalm 119, which is, you know, the, the psalmist is talking about the greatness of the written word of God, but he does it in, in a form of prayer. Uh, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, that kind of thing. He's addressing it to God. And so Augustine wrote his confessions that way too. He's talking to God and we're listening to him as he discusses the journey that God brought him on. At any rate, at that point in his life, he is, he is a combustible, lust-filled teenager in a hissing cauldron of lust, or young man maybe by that point. He was successful in rhetoric, very good at it, but he found it to be empty. He took a concubine in Carthage, basically like living together with someone in our day, and this woman stayed with him 15 years. We don't know her name. We, he never mentions her name. She bore him a son, we do know his name, Adeodatus, which means a gift from God or given by God. He became a teacher of rhetoric uh, from ages 19 to 30. Um, and he just lived a dissolute life. Um, his conversion took a long time. At age 19, he read Cicero's Hortensius, and God used that work to turn him away from open immorality to a study of philosophy, to a more moral life in the pagan, moralistic sort of way. Cicero led him in that direction. He then was drawn into Manichaeism, now, what is Manichaeism? Well, Manichaeism was a very popular religion at that point. It was a dualistic system, good and evil, good versus evil. God, totally pure, however, could not have uh, created anything evil. So they looked on, on God as the one who creates good things, but he did not create anything evil. Evil came from an invasion of the kingdom of light by the kingdom of darkness. 
and they're equal in power. That's what dualism is all about, good and evil battling it out on e equal terms, eternal and totally separate. Individual people were created good, but something alien came from the outside and hijacked people to do evil things. This is Manichaeism. Manny, the prophet uh, of, in, this, in this view, uh, rejected the Old Testament as an emanation from that evil kingdom of a demiurge, an evil like, a, like the Old Testament was demonic. It was wor the words of the devil masquerading as an angel of light. So it was very anti-Old Testament. Augustine was attracted to the basic idea that his struggle with sin was a struggle with something that was alien to his true nature, something from the outside in. However, he eventually saw the falsehood of this whole Manichaeistic system and became the leading opponent of Manichaeism, the leading spokesman for the true biblical vision of one transcendent, sovereign creator God and the biblical view of evil. At age 29, Augustine moved from Carthage to Rome to take up a job teaching, but he became fed up with his students and moved to a teaching post in Milan. And this was all under the hand of God. Two key occurrences happened in Milan. He began to read Neoplatonic writing, Neoplatonism. He discovered that and was reading it. And then he met the great Archbishop of Milan, Ambrose, Ambrose of Milan. Now, Plotinus recovered Plato's vision of one transcendent God, Neoplatonism. So you've got this idea of one transcendent God, but coming through Plato, the Greek philosopher. And he taught the freedom, Plotinus did, the freedom the need for freedom from the fleshly nature through rigorous self-discipline. That's what Neoplatonism was teaching. It wrongly taught the inherent evil of the material world. Now that system of Neoplatonism helped wean Augustine away from Manichaeism. It became somewhat of a way station to biblical faith in his journey. Now let's speak about Ambrose. Ambrose was the, was the bishop, the archbishop of Milan. He was a gifted preacher of the word and a disciple of men. Very similar to Chrysostom that we studied last time. Very gifted in preaching. In Milan, uh, says Augustine in Confessions book 5, chapter 13, in Milan I found your devoted servant, the bishop Ambrose. At that time his gifted tongue never tired of dispensing the richness of your corn, the joy of your oil the sober intoxication of your wine. Unknown to me, it was you who led me to him so that I might knowingly be led by him to you. Do you hear that? He, he believed that God sovereignly ordained and orchestrated that he should be in Milan and hear Ambrose preach. His Neoplatonism was scandalized by the idea that the word, Jesus Christ, the word became flesh but he listened week after week to Ambrose's skillful, beautiful sermons. He still, however, was controlled by sexual lust. He was in chains to sexual lust. His mother, Monica, had arranged a society marriage for him, but he was required to send away his concubine. He did this with great reluctance, but he couldn't control himself for the two years until his marriage, and soon he had another mistress. He just couldn't stop sexual immorality. Well, now we've come to the time of his famous conversion. Uh, he says in Confessions, book 8, and um, paragraph 6, he said, O Lord, my helper and my redeemer, I shall now tell and confess to the glory of your name how you released me from the fetters of lust which held me so tightly shackled and from my slavery to the things of this world. So if you're reading Confessions, book 8 is where this account is found. It was late August in the year 386. Augustine was almost 32 years old.
He was pondering the holy example of Antony. Remember him from, from Athanasius, the desert-dwelling monk who had lived many years before in Egypt and who had achieved such mastery over his earthly appetites through self-control. So he began meditating on the, on the issue of self-control. And he was in anguish over how long this battle against sexual lust had been going on. With abandon, he said, I uttered pitiful words. How long? How long will it be tomorrow? No, the next tomorrow. Well, why not now? Why can't this hour be the end of the disgusting state that I'm in? I'm saying these things and weeping with agonizing anguish in my heart. And then I hear a voice from the household next door, the voice of someone, a little boy or girl, I, I don't know which, incessantly and insistently chanting, tole lege, tole lege, which is pick it up, read it, pick it up, read it, tole lege, tole lege. Immediately, my mood changed, and I started considering with great concentration whether children were accustomed to chanting something like that in any game. I couldn't remember that I'd ever heard anything like it anywhere. I got control over the onslaught of my tears and got up, construing the chant as a straightforward divine command to open a book and read the chapter I first found there. So, excited, I returned to the spot where I'd put down a book of the Apostle Paul's letters. I grabbed it, opened it, and I read in silence the passage on which my eyes first fell. Well, what was that passage? It's Romans 13, 13 and 14. There the text says, Let us behave decently as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Then Augustine said about this as he read those words, I didn't want to read any further, and indeed there was no need for it. The instant I finished this sentence, my heart was virtually flooded with a light of relief and certitude, and all the darkness of my hesitation scattered away. He was born again. The chains of sexual lust were broken by the power of the Word of God. Isn't it amazing when we think about the providence of God orchestrating this whole thing? and that that should be the text he would open up and read, and how he came to realize theologically later on that God could give whatever he wanted. He could command whatever he wanted if you would give what he commanded. So if he commanded sexual purity, he had to give it in order for us to obey it. And he saw right away the sovereignty of God and the grace of salvation. Well, as soon as this happened, he told his mother, Monica, she was overjoyed. And Augustine was baptized by Ambrose in, on Easter, the year 387. He then returned to Carthage. He left Italy to return to his home. Monica died right before they sailed. Soon after that, his son Adiodatus also died, as did one of his best friends. Augustine at that point was truly alone in the world, but it actually caused him to draw closer to Hippo. Sailed to Carthage in the year 391, went to Hippo. The bishop Valerius uh, saw him in the congregation, put aside his prepared sermon, and preached on the urgent need for priests in Hippo. <laughs> so the crowd spotted Augustine and forced him into service as a priest. They saw him weeping and thought it was because he wanted to be a bishop, not a priest. All in good time, they thought. 
Valerius was shrewd. He knew that the church in North Africa needed someone to fight the heresies of Manichaeism and Donatism. We'll talk about that. But uh, preaching was the sole province of bishops. But Valerius gave the job to Augustine. And Augustine became quickly the scourge of the Donatists. Uh, Valerius convinced the archbishop to make uh, Augustine co-bishop with him in Hippo, and he did. And in the year 395, Valerius died, and Augustine became the sole bishop of Hippo. So now let's talk about Augustine as doctrinal controversialist, uh, fighting for the truth of sound theology. We've already talked about Manichaeism and how he fought against it, and I've described it to you. Augustine had been taken in by this religion before his conversion, but eventually he became its most powerful foe. He said, I still thought that it was not we who sin, but some other nature that sins within us. It flattered my pride to think that I incurred no guilt, and when I did wrong, not to confess it. I preferred to excuse myself and blame this unknown thing, which was in me, but not part of me. The truth, of course, was that it was all my own self, and my own impiety had divided me against myself. My sin was all the more incurable because I did not think myself a sinner. So he really exposed the problems of Manichaeism and that, that Zoroastrian dualism uh, that was part of it. But let's talk about Donatism. Donatism was a schismatic movement, a, a breakaway movement among Christians in North Africa, beginning in the 4th century uh, AD, led by Donatists, since the name Donatism, a bishop uh, there in Kasai Nigrai, and the theologian uh, Donatus the Great. Uh, the schism arose when certain Christians protested the election of the Bishop of Carthage, charging that his consecration by Felix, a Bishop of Aptunga, was invalid because Felix was considered a traitor, a traditor actually in Latin, one who had turned over the scriptures and relics to civil authorities during the Roman persecution. Um, Condemnation then was extended to all in communion with Felix. It was a guilt by association argument. Beyond their objection lay the heresy that only those living a blameless life belonged in the church. And further, uh, that the validity of any sacrament depended upon the personal holiness and worthiness of the priest administering it. The Donatist practice of rebaptizing was particularly abhorrent abhorrent to Orthodox Christians. Condemned by the Synod of Arles in 314, also by the Roman Emperor Constantine I, the Donatists seceded, pulled out in the year 316, and set up their own hierarchy of, of priests and bishops. By the year 350, they outnumbered Orthodox Christians in Africa. And each city had its opposing Orthodox and Donatist bishops. It was a clear schism in Christianity. It was the teaching of Augustine as presented in his writings and the debate between Orthodox and Donatist bishops at Carthage in the year 411 that finally and irrevocably turned the tide against Donatism. The remnants of the schismatic movement had vanished along with African Christianity as Islam invaded a few centuries later and it was gone entirely by then. So that's Donatism. He also had his key battle against Pelagianism. We need to spend some time on Pelagianism. The idea uh, in Augustine has to do with sovereign joy, that God has power to give us joy that drives out sin. Um, he wrote this in Confessions, Book 9, Chapter 1. During all those years of rebellion, where was my free will? 
What was the hidden secret place from which it was summoned in a moment? So that I might bend my neck to your easy yoke. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure, though not to flesh and blood. You who outshine all light and yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts. You who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men who see all honor in themselves. O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. Confessions, book nine. Isn't that good writing? But listen to the theology behind it. God drives out sin by his goodness and his purity and his beauty. He does better what any sin offers. Sin offers pleasure, God offers more. Sin offers wealth and success. God offers better and lasting wealth and success. God drives out evil by sovereign joy. That's the basic idea of grace in Augustine. God giving us sovereign joy that triumphs powerfully over sin. God sovereignly works in us that we delight in him above all other sources of pleasure. This drives sin away from us. Augustine knew that all people strive constantly for their own happiness. What guides us and governs the will is the natural yearning for happiness, what we consider to be our delight. But this is what made this monk Pelagius so angry. Now this is a good place to stop. Uh, Next time we're going to talk more about Augustine's battle against Pelagius and Pelagianism because I believe it is one of the lasting battles that goes beyond the Reformation into the present time. I would say the overwhelming majority of evangelicalism is characterized by what I would call something called semi-Pelagianism, which is a a mild form of free willism that I think we need to address. And Augustine is a powerful advocate against it. We're also next time going to talk more about Augustine as a mystic and some of the problems with Augustine, the lasting problems that he left in the Roman Catholic Church that had to be addressed by the Reformation and are still continuing today. So we'll talk about that next time. So as we conclude today, I want you to go into your week knowing that your loving Heavenly Father holds your life and all your ways in His hands. Nothing can happen to you apart from His will. He orchestrates the rise and fall of mighty empires and the death of sparrows that no one ever sees. He has numbered the very hairs of your head, and all the days ordained for you were written in His book before one of them came to be. And He has gone ahead of you to prepare a specific set of good works for you to walk in, good works that are essential to His eternal kingdom. Just as your brothers and sisters in Christ live for His glory in their day, do the same in yours by the power of His Spirit for the glory of His Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.